Welcome to Talk Plus Water, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the world of water with those making waves. My name's Todd Butler, and I'm your host for Talk Plus Water. I'm also the editor-in-chief of Texas Plus Water and the Texas Water Journal. You can sign up for Texas Plus Water by visiting texasplusWater.org, and you can sign up for the Texas Water Journal at texaswaterjournal.org. Both publications are free. Today, I'm in uh, one of my favorite places, places, Whitefish, Montana, and I am here at City Beach, uh, and I'm overlooking uh, Whitefish Lake, and it's an absolutely gorgeous day, 75 degrees, something like that, you know, absolutely clear. Everybody's out in the lake paddleboarding and have a great time, and I'm with my guest, uh, John Mulfeld. And he is the principal hydrologist of the River Design Group here in Whitefish. And he's also the mayor of the city of Whitefish. Um, John, welcome to Talk Plus Water. Pleasure to be here. So I'm going to read a little bit about the, the things that you've done before we get started. Um, so John, as I mentioned, is the principal hydrologist for the River Design Group um, and the mayor of Whitefish, and he has a degree in geoscience and water resources from Hobart College in upstate New York, and there he looked at um, the effects of non-point source contamination on Lake Seneca. In 22 years of professional experience, John has worked for the U.S. Forest Service and worked as a forest hydrologist for the state of Montana's Department of Natural Resources and Conservation, and he is now with the River Design Group where he's a project manager and lead restoration hydrologist for numerous large-scale restoration projects in Montana, including the Odell Spring Creek and Wetland Restoration Project and the Upper Blackfoot Mining Complex involving the headwaters of the infamous Blackfoot River. John participates in all aspects of project development, including geomorphic investigations, design criteria development, preliminary and final design, regulatory permitting, and construction management. Uh, you do it all, it sounds like. <laughs> so uh, it's great having you on, and, and you're a busy guy. We've been working to like get this our schedules to meet, and I'm, I'm glad we're finally able to do it. Likewise. So, I always like to kind of start out with a question about you know how you how you kind of decided that water was you know what you wanted to devote your career to or what really you know got you out of bed and, and going every morning. How did can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, I get I get asked that question uh, quite frequently, and I think I have to bring it back to my childhood. We were raised on a small coastal town in Connecticut on Long Island Sound. Uh, my grandfather was an avid sailor, uh, competed in the America's Cup, so we were uh, frequently as children on his boat up in Madison, Connecticut, um, sailing out of the Madison Yacht Club, um, crewing for my grandfather. Uh, my parents also. Um, we would spend summers in upstate New York in the Adirondack State Park, uh, Caroga Lake, uh, New York. And it was there that I think my brother, who's actually an aquatic ecologist with the U.S. Geological Survey, um, just learned a passion for water and water resources and aquatics. Uh, we spent a lot of our summers, you know, diving, you know, fishing, uh, diving for crawdads, snorkeling around the lake, sailing, of course. And from there, um, I 
watched progressively how the lake deteriorated from a water quality standpoint, largely due to septic leachate contamination, as well as the introduction of Eurasian uh, water milfoil into those uh, waters that came through the St. Lawrence uh, Seaway. Unfortunately, uh, most of the lakes in upstate New York now are infested with zebra mussels or Dresnia polymorpha. Uh, Fortunately, Kuroga Lake has been spared so far. But it was from that experience, watching the deterioration in the lake water quality and the productivity, um, I, I realized that perhaps my passion in life would lie with the restoration end of things when it comes to water resources. I went to school just a mere two hours from Kuroga Lake on Seneca Lake, so one of five or six of the Finger Lakes in upstate New York, uh, these glacially carved you know, water bodies, beautiful country, uh, great vineyards if you're into that kind of thing. Um, and I, I started studying geosciences uh, with a focus in limnology and non-point source uh, pollution investigations on Seneca Lake. So did my senior thesis on investigating the effects of agricultural uh, development in a small watershed on lake water quality and primary uh, productivity. So during that time, I would frequently, my friends and I would travel back to Kuroga Lake to my childhood summer home. And again, just progressively watching the lake continue to deteriorate. It was quite depressing, to be oh, quite what, frank. What how, what over what period? How long? That was over the period of about 15 years. Okay. Yeah, wow. that I, I watched deteriorate. My parents purchased the home and when I was about five years old, and they sold it ultimately when I graduated college when I was about 20 years old. So over a 15-year period of market uh, change in lake water quality and just the overall trophic status you know, of the lake and the productivity, the fisheries, the bug life, etc. So it was, it was a call, I think, to, to some degree for both my brother and I to uh, pursue you know, degrees in related fields. Um, as I mentioned, he's now with the USGS out of West Glacier uh, Research Ecologist, and I've yeah. landed myself here um, in Montana as a principal at River Design Group, and we've been operating now as a private consulting firm for about 19 years. So so you grew up on the East Coast and, you know, kind of very different um, water, you know, circumstances there, you know, getting out, I guess, in the ocean and, and, and sailing and then the, the Finger Lakes, as you're talking about. Um, how did you how did you decide to come out here? Well, we had a friend that had graduated from University of Denver who raved about whitefish. He came up here to spend one winter to, quote, ski and then go back to the East Coast and find a real job. He was driving a taxi cab at the time. My brother had moved from the University of Maine to University of Montana to finish his undergraduate degree and was um, spending one summer working in Libby, Montana for Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, which turned into a multiple-year position. So he actually put me in touch with multiple job opportunities my senior year in college, and I was fortunate to land a position as a hydrologic technician on the Kootenai National Forest, uh, part of the National Forest System um, up in Eureka, Montana. So that's what landed me um, in Whitefish was that connection and like my friend that had lived here and still does live here i was supposed to be here for one winter but i'm still here 26 years later well you're (laughs) lucky that's great yeah i feel very lucky that i've landed here and been able to to stay that's for sure so uh you as i mentioned are part of the river design group so tell me 
So tell me what that uh, your company does. What what do, what do y'all do typically? So, so I'm one of five principals. We started the company uh, back in 2003. We have offices in here in Whitefish, um, as well as Corvallis, Oregon, and Boise, Idaho, as well. So I have I well, I guess we have kind of another connection. So I'm part of a group out of Corvallis called Four Worlds, which is a group of professors essentially that work in uh, conflict resolution mostly focused on water and other environmental issues so I was just interesting just throwing that in there so uh, the the work that y'all do in the river design group um, is it so is it mostly focused on Man- Montana or are you doing project or do you do projects other than Montana or I, I do we're, we're okay. throughout the Pacific Northwest so our primary focus area is the, the Rocky Mountain region all the way to the coast so Montana Wyoming Idaho Washington Oregon and Northern California I I focus primarily in Montana and Idaho although I frequently do travel to Oregon to assist our Oregon staff with projects um, but as I mentioned we, we started the company back in 2003 we were brought together under unique circumstances we were employed by previous or former consulting firm that really wasn't being managed very well so we decided to hang our own shingle out and go for it and we've been largely successful but we're again a private consulting firm we focus in uh, water resources engineering projects and we provide those consulting services to state and federal agencies uh, tribal non-tribal organizations nonprofits such as Montana Trout Unlimited Trout Unlimited National and other you know water groups throughout the Northwest. So the kind of restoration work you've been involved with, um, is that, do you see, I mean, not just the work that you've done, but you see the projects that are going on throughout the Western United States. Um, are there more in some states than other? I mean, I imagine there's a lot going on in California, but do you see other states in the West where there's a lot of this kind of activity going on? It's, it's a booming industry, and I call it the restoration or refer to it as the restoration economy. And when we were, for example, removing Milltown Dam at the confluence of the Clark Fork and Blackfoot Rivers, I remember former Governor Brian Schweitzer uh, coined that term, the restoration economy, and he was exactly huh. correct in that it's really taken off not only in Montana but throughout the West and throughout the country. I know the Southeast America has a very strong – or Southeast U.S. has a very strong uh, restoration economy similar to Montana and the Pacific Northwest. And I do only see that growing because a lot of uh, the cleanup work that occurs, um, the studies, the restoration projects are largely uh, federally mandated under the Clean Water Act, for example. Mm -hmm. And so I do not see the work slowing down. In fact, I think it's on a significant uptick. So, you know, there are not many of those projects in Texas yet. I, we, we published a, a journal article, the Texas War Journal, about it. And there's a lot of need for it. I mean, there are all sorts of small dams that, you know, they've, they're not really maintained much anymore and they've outlived their usefulness. But, but I, I think, you know, there's kind of a threshold, I guess, where you see some of them being removed and that leads other uh, communities to say, hey, you know, let's do the same here. And uh, it seems like, you know, it's that's it's kind of out here. It's picked up momentum. I mean, you see a lot about it in the newspapers and there are a lot of articles about it. And, you know, people are very excited about, hey, the river is being restored and maybe this run of, you know, salmon or, or some 
some other fit. I mean, you see it in the East Coast too. Yeah. Um, is going to be restored, and um, I mean, it, it seems like you say that it's it's a phenomenon that's really picking up. Yeah, and oftentimes we're actually approached by the actual utility to evaluate the current condition, the dam safety analysis, and we work with other firms to perform those studies. But largely they come to us because these facilities represent a very small percentage of their overall power portfolio. And when they go to relicense with the federal government, there are new requirements in place that they need to meet, such as, you know, temperature, you know, trying to mimic historical temperature regimes, flow regimes, provide fish passage, etc. And oftentimes these facilities have been neglected to the point where they're not only failing, but they're also a significant you know, safety hazard and right. they pose a risk to the utility. So that's where we get involved. And obviously um, our involvement also you know, stems from you know, work under the Superfund Act uh, where we've you know, removed several dams in Montana as a result of you know, Superfund listing. Right. So I have to say this because my listeners in Texas who know me will say, yeah, <laughs> have to say something about that baller. So I worked for the Guadalupe Blanco River Authority. And so probably the most famous, you know, example of a little dam like that, you know, collapsing is when uh, part of one of our dams collapsed on video about you know, four or five years ago. And that was on CNN just, I mean, it's all the time and the other uh, you know big networks and <clears throat> that was a dam that there were a series of of dams about half a dozen built between 1928 and 1932 that were small hydroelectric dams and uh you know the the uh, the dams could be rehabilitated, but uh, they could never provide enough hydroelectric power to to pay for that work. Right. And so um, the river authority was kind of in a conundrum because there's all sorts of very expensive real estate that had developed around the lakes that those dams maintain. And so you know for the for the agency which didn't get any revenue, you know from the landowners uh, who lived around those lakes any significant revenue. Um, you know, maintaining the dam was the problem because uh, it wasn't producing much money uh, and, uh, you know, replacing it is you know, really, really expensive. So, so I have, so I'm familiar with kind of that conundrum. Um, so talk a little bit about what is kind of the process for a, a dam removal? What, what are some of the big major steps that have to be um, um, undertaken? Well, it, it certainly depends on the scale and scope of the, the facility and the project. You know, with projects where it's simply a, a dam removal and that let the river adjust naturally upstream and downstream, it's a little more uh, simplified compared to a project such as, you know, the Milltown Dam removal at the confluence of the Clark Fork and the Blackfoot just east of Missoula, where we had to integrate our design team with um, the remediation team that's actually doing the the waste removal upstream of the dam, as well as the removal of the actual dam infrastructure. So these are mine waste and 
is it in it, that particular example that was mine waste that was transported down the Clark Fork River from the upper Clark Fork River back in I believe 19 1908 one year after the dam was actually constructed what, what was it uh, a gold mine silver or uranium or what it was it was Butte Silverbow Silver, area okay yep, so all the above gotcha. um, and it, it essentially it contaminated about 55 miles of the Clark Fork River wow. um, from Butte all the way downstream to Milltown Dam and I believe in the mid 80s uh, the Environmental Protection Agency detected um, metals in the drinking water supply in the town of Bonner, Montana, where the dam was located, which triggered the Superfund action. You know, with Superfund or these large-scale projects, they would typically first focus on remediating the source. Right. And the source being the floodplain contaminants that were deposited during that 1908 flood in the upper Clark Fork before removing the dam. But because of that hazard related to the drinking water supply of both Bonner, but also the Missoula Aquifer, um, it triggered an immediate action um, by EPA, and that's what triggered the removal of that that facility. So how much? So you so you had to go in, and y'all had to remove all that sediment, and then um, so how many? I guess inches or feet of sediment did you? I mean, just kind of a ballpark. So, so at like. the actual dam crest, there was between 20 and 30 feet in thickness of wow. contaminated sediments that needed to be uh, removed. And that, that depositional wedge that's formed upstream of, of the dam um, extended about three miles upstream. Wow. So we were one of several consulting firms on that project. Our primary role was once the dam was removed and the sediments removed, um, our role was re reestablishing, you know, the valley morphology, the channel, and then rebuilding the actual river, the stream banks, um, the revegetation of the floodplain, etc. Uh, but there's a lot of uncertainty going into these types of projects, as you may be aware. We had a pretty good estimate as to the the elevation and the profile of the, the buried floodplain surface. Again, this was buried back in the 1908 flood, which was about a 500-year flood of record in the upper Clark Fork uh, River watershed. Uh, so as the sediments were removed, obviously the river, the first step was engineering a clear water bypass channel, so basically an armored uh, bypass that would be in place for about six years as the sediment uh, was removed. Um, a majority of the sediments were loaded in train cars yeah. and haul about three million yards hauled back up to repositories in the upper Clark Fork uh, River basically this, from where the sediments came from quite okay. frankly uh, so those were you know engineered repositories they're lined and capped etc uh, so as the sediment removals um continued, we were basically sampling and determining what the historical buried A horizon or the soil A horizon uh, was. And what was unique about that site is, you know, they, they had logged the floodplain prior to, you know, filling the reservoir. And so we were encountering all the old floodplain stumps and yeah. the old river terraces. So once those elevations were established, it was very much an iterative design process um, where we had to frequently adjust uh, 
you know, the profile of the riverbed, the profile of the floodplain through our design process to match what we were um, uncovering, you know, as the sediment removal uh, continued for about three years. So it was a pretty unique process. So there's always uncertainty right. and you, there's there's the need to be adaptable um, because your initial design is not going to be what translates on the ground in some situations. So, you know, adapting to the, the ground conditions that are encountered um, is pretty, pretty pivotal. So, like you say, I mean, there's the science and the engineering aspects of that kind of a restoration. But imagine there's also it's also somewhat of a kind of an art form thing, too. I mean, you know, you you get a feel for what might work and how things might work. Is there I mean, is there any element of that to it? Yeah. I mean, we, we spent about four years doing investigations. So I, I categorize those into geomorphic investigations. You know, what did the river and the valley look like prior to dam construction? You know, we had anecdotal records and evidence, general land office notes dating back to the late 1800s, um, depicting the confluence of the Clark Fork and the Blackfoot uh, rivers. We obviously had historical imagery, but of course that didn't predate the construction or installation of Milltown Dam. We also did have some very old black and white photos uh, taken during the actual construction of the dam that um, depicted a very well forested, you know, stable river environment upstream of the dam, which um, there were several practitioners and um, educators that were claiming that this uh, river system prior to dam construction was was more of a braided uh, very dynamic river system but from all accounts we could tell it was more of a stable um, dominant river channel with multiple secondary channels that would be accessed uh, during flood flow so those little pieces of evidence helped develop our design criteria and more importantly you know much like an architect develops a blueprint we actually investigated uh, river reaches on the Clark Fork River and up in the Blackfoot River watershed uh, that were considered quote reference or, or analog reaches to what we were trying to replicate through our design process so all the data is is scalable. It doesn't matter if you're studying a 100 foot wide river and designing for a 130 foot wide river. You can make all those data dimensionless and then scale the data to develop design dimensions for your particular project. So that's that's basically the approach we took. You know, obviously, you know that's just more the field geomorphology component, looking at what Mother Nature's telling you. Then, of course, there's the whole aspect of the hydrology and the sediment transport considerations that need to be taken into consideration during the design process. So we spent multiple years actually sampling suspended as well as bed load, um, suspended sediment as well as bed load upstream of the dams on both the Clark Fork and Blackfoot rivers to, you know, measure how much sediment, both bed load and fine sediments are being transported through the reach because obviously we needed to maintain with our design continuity, meaning continuity of flow, continuity of sediment transport. And so that's some of the investigations that were completed to support the design process. So the, uh, the, you know, the finished product, is there, um, is there, you know, trout fishing along that stretch? Is that like uh, an area that will, you can, I guess, uh, catch fish and not have to worry about, um, you know, contamination of the fish or, or, you know, something like that? 
Yes. Yeah. I mean, imagine this dam was basically a barrier to fish migrating from the middle Clark Fork into the upper Clark Fork, as well as the Blackfoot River for over 100 years. You know, that reservoir environment that was formed as a result of the impoundment basically favored mostly non-native species, including pike. Right. Um, And there was some cultural attachment with the town of Bonner to that environment. I mean, there were a lot of folks that uh, resisted removal of the dam and just seeing change on the landscape. And we certainly understood that going into the project. So, you know, balancing expectations from a design standpoint, but also socially was was an equal challenge. And fortunately, uh, the state and federal agencies managed most of that um, expectation for us. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, So how quickly did you see some of the native species kind of taking advantage of? Immediately. It was immediate response. Um, You know, we literally the removal of that dam opened up hundreds of miles of, you know, riverine habitat that was formerly truncated as a result of the dam. Wow. Okay. So, uh, you know, what I find interesting about this uh, type of work, I was, a few years ago, I was in China for a conference talking about water, and there was a lot of folks, not only from China, but from India and Bangladesh, and, you know, the, the... the talk there is all about building new dams. You know, yeah. that is like the, you know, they're really, you know, in a, a heyday of, of building a lot of new dams. And uh, I just, you know, I kind of, you know, I, I think about, you know, where we are. And I wonder, you know, if that movement will ever kind of spread over there. Because the dam constructions, it's it's also uh, a more, more in some ways, a, a very you know political act, and it relates to uh, regional power because you know one country's got the dam, and then this other country's downstream, and so it has to, it gets tangled in their relations. But um, you know, is do you see this happening in Europe or any other part of the world where people are you know taking a look at uh, dams and and saying, well, you know this one has kind of outlived its usefulness and so maybe it'd be better if we didn't have it. I can't imagine that that won't be the trend. I don't follow what's happening very closely globally, but I I can imagine that's going to have to be the trend, you know, because they're going to face similar situations that, you know, we have in the U.S. with these antiquated, you know, facilities that are posing a risk to public health and safety and not, you know, they've outlived their useful life. Right, right. So we've been focusing on dams here, but you also manage wetlands restoration projects. Um, so let's talk a little bit about those. Are you are those projects? Do you do wetlands creation? Are you restoring wetlands? Do you do a combination? What do you what what, what do you work on? We do a combination, so a creation as well as. Um, restoration. You know, a lot of the large-scale wetland restoration projects we actually have performed are directly, ironically, related to mitigation requirements associated with hydro facilities. Okay. So, for example, uh, when Kerr Dam was built at the outlet of Flathead Lake, uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service acquired multiple um, national wildlife refuges as well as waterfowl production areas um, in northwest 
Montana, and they were required as part of the licensing of that dam or the, the facility was required to mitigate, pay the mitigation. Um, so we've worked on several large Lost Trail National Wildlife Refuge. We just underway this week, actually, on the Swan National Wildlife Refuge out of Swan Lake, Montana, uh, restoring um, these broad you know, wetland environments that were previously drained and cleared for agricultural uh, production. So ironically, the, the hydro facility mitigation funds are being used to restore these degraded wetland habitats. Probably the best example we have to describe today is our work down in the Madison River Valley in a small town called Ennis, Montana. Northwestern Energy owns and maintains two large hydro facilities, both on Ennis Lake as well as Hebgen Lake near Yellowstone National Park. So as part of you know their licensing, you know they're required to mitigate for impacts related to fish and wildlife resources on both the Madison and Missouri River, and I believe they they um, are on the hook for about 55 miles of, of river um, mitigation. And so over the past 18 years, my firm's worked very closely with Northwestern Energy, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks, and of course, uh, private landowners um, to restore about 1,000 acres of, of previously drained, emergent, and shallow to deep open water wetland habitats on the Odell Spring Creek area, which is a major cold water uh, tributary to the Madison River just south of Ennis, Montana. So that's been a remarkable partnership, a remarkable project, and the fact that we had two willing landowners um, that allowed us basically a free reign to, you know, restore all the degraded wetlands. And we've seen just a significant response in terms of wildlife and waterfowl use. We've partnered with the University of Montana, uh, their bird ecology center to study um, waterfowl response. And it's just amazing to see how the landscapes transformed. So uh, anybody who listens to this podcast regularly knows I'm a big fan of wetlands and started out my career working on wetlands. And and so, I, you know, it, that's great to hear because, you know, I keep looking at all the big problems that we're trying to deal with um, related to water and a lot of them related to climate and the and biodiversity loss. And, you know, the, the answer keeps coming up wetlands, you know, even for flooding and, and things like that. And uh, so um, it, your work um, restoring wetlands uh, and creating wetlands um you know, do you, uh, I guess, you know, early on when people were creating wetlands in, I was studying this in the eighties, a lot of times they were like using the uplands and all that. And you might get, you might, it might work or might not. And, and I imagine that that whole field has really, um, uh, advanced quite a bit since then. It has. And, you know, when people think about, wetland restoration they sometimes imagine and some of the work is performed this way you know large earth working earth moving operations you know you know, generating open water features and then they're they have to supplement the wetlands with you know irrigation water because those are areas that didn't formally support wetland habitat in the case of odell creek and the refuges we've worked on those wetlands were largely drained just through land clearing and ditching so in the case of the Odell Spring Creek, uh, they literally dug a ditch and incised the river channel back in the 1940s to drain the land so that they could increase hay production and run cattle. And so a lot of the wetland restoration at Odell and these other projects has just in, in simply involved reconnecting the Spring Creek 
and these river channels with their historical floodplains that have been disconnected because of those physical alterations to the landscape. Uh, so um, in the case of Odell Creek, it's been about 19 miles of Spring Creek restoration where we've raised the channel several feet to reconnect those former wetland surfaces and the seeds there. I mean, you just have to restore the hydrology in some cases and the vegetation is going to respond. And that's largely been the case uh, with Odell Creek and certainly the refuges we've worked on um, up here in northwest Montana. And it sounds like some, a lot of those areas are, are areas that are open to the public eventually. They are. I mean, of course, the, the National Wildlife Refuges and the waterfowl production areas are open to the public for, you know, viewing wildlife, you know, hunting, mm-hmm. uh, fishing, etc. Yeah, so when we finish, I'm going to have to ask you about Swan Lake because I duck up, up, up <laughs> there, so I don't know. I'm going to find out where that project is. Uh, so uh, let's... Let's go on a little bit to your, your role as mayor. I, I have to first say that you're the only hydrologist I know who's a mayor, or, <laughs> or in let in the you know uh, a, an office, high profile office, a profile office at least in Texas. I don't know any hydrologists, and so um, as somebody who every once in a while thinks, hmm, you know, I wonder if I should throw my hat in the ring for something or you know get involved more um it's not something that that you know that that part of your career is not something you you see um folks who are scientists and engineers you know take too often and uh i find now that you know i do most most of my work i do is related to public policy and so i'm just i'm just curious about that you know what what um you know what was that like for you um you know having this very different background and then you know deciding to get involved with uh, um you know civic uh, responsibilities as mayor i certainly didn't envision this to be my life path the last 16 years <laughs> i was i didn't have any political aspirations i was serving you know about 16 years ago as vice chairman of the whitefish lake and lake shore protection committee which is a volunteer committee much like mayorships volunteer here in whitefish as well we're not paid um i was serving on that committee um in the capacity of just reviewing permits and doing construction inspections etc and there was a vacancy on the city council and i was asked to throw my name in the ring and i was was fortunate to have been appointed I think back in 2006 to that city council and then I ran successfully for a four-year city council term before uh, throwing my hat in for there my name in the ring for mayor and I'm fortunate to have served now I'm on my 11th year wow. on my third term so I have one and a half more years left on my third term and it's it's been very rewarding but it certainly wasn't a goal of mine when I moved to Whitefish to become uh, mayor of this town. Well I had no idea you weren't paid because there's a lot of was there a lot of action going on here in Whitefish for There certainly town. is and that's that's in our charter and the only way to change that is through a change in the charter which needs to come from the public by the people. Well as a part-time resident of Whitefish I thank you <laughs> You're welcome. for doing all that. So uh, you know Thinking about Whitefish and, you know, the kind of size city that it is, you know, what are some of the water projects that you're working on uh, in your capacity as, as mayor? What are, you know, what are some of the things that are going on here? 
Quite, quite a bit. I mean, obviously, we're surrounded by water. I mean, right. we live on the lake. We derive about 15% of our municipal water supply from Whitefish Lake. The rest comes from Haskell Basin, two surface water sources that originate on, on the Whitefish Range. But we've, we've had a longstanding commitment to, to water projects. Um, I'll start with aquatic invasive species. Obviously, this is a prized gem in Whitefish. It's one of yep. the biggest economic drivers to our community. And the thought of the introduction of zebra mussels, for example, uh, to this lake water body would be devastating to our water supply and obviously the high property values that we see around Whitefish Lake. Uh, we are a little bit ahead of the state years ago in the fact that we actually helped fund and develop our own aquatic invasive species uh, program here in Whitefish that was managed by our partners, Whitefish Lake Institute, a nonprofit organization, kind of the watchdog of Whitefish Lake in partnership with the city of Whitefish. So years ago, you know, we launched our own aquatic invasive species, you know, check station program and we currently have one about 200 yards at the city beach boat launch as well as the state park boat launch you know on the west shore of whitefish lake that's been largely successful we've had you know multiple partners help us with the funding because of course it requires staffing and infrastructure we have our own uh, decontamination station um, that's stationed here at city beach and of course we have strong partnerships with uh, the fish wildlife and parks division as well as the tribal entities up in the blackfeet nation so five, six years ago, I was spending a lot of time on this in Texas and, uh, you know, representing uh, one of the river authorities when we were working with Texas Parks and Wildlife, trying to figure out, you know, how do we stop the spread of zebra mussels? And it was, you know, we were not, you know, very successful, yeah. I hate to say. And, uh, you know, we relied uh, for the most part on kind of a, you know, a campaign uh, of, you know, public information, mostly for, you know, trying to target people who, who do a lot of boating. And a lot of the, the boating, you know, people will take their bass boat, they'll go from one lake to another. And, you know, and so that's how you end up, you know, yeah. spreading zebra mussels. Um, I've really been impressed that you've been able to do that here. Um, uh, I think it, it, it seems like it probably helps to have, you know, uh, a, a small number of, I guess, access points to the lake. Sure. Um, but uh, I mean, but the bigger risk with that is when you, yeah, on the one hand, you have very limited access points, but you also have several hundred residences with private docks right. on the lake, many of which are Canadian residents that come down from British Columbia, et cetera. And so our partners that are running the, the more regional check stations are obviously instrumental in protecting this lake because they intercept those boats well before we do. So I, I took my test and I got my certificate. Good. I passed it. and I, Online? I, uh, I did, yep. And I put a sticker on uh, one of our paddle boards, I think is what I put on. Um, and so, uh, you know, I thought that was great that, you know, people have to take that short test and yep. you know, just learn enough to, to, it's all common sense stuff too. Yeah. Absolutely. Really Absolutely. You know, and I, I can't neglect to bring this project up, but I think one of Whitefish's watershed moments and probably the most rewarding job I've worked on as mayor in partnership with our community has been the protection of Haskell Basin. Uh, this was a project that we worked with 
in partnership with the Trust for Public Land, the U.S. Forest Service, and Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. Uh, back in 2016, the deal was closed, and it essentially lifted the development rights off about 3,000 acres of forested watershed in Haskell Basin. And as I mentioned earlier, the city derives about 90% of its municipal water supply from those two intakes on Haskell Basin. And for about 100 years, on little more than a handshake agreement with the landowner, F.H. Stoltz Land and Lumber Company, uh, the city's been maintaining and operating those, you know, head gates and diversions uh, that deliver water down to our water treatment plant in Haskell Basin. Um, so the time was right. The stars aligned. We were approached by the Trust for Public Land, an incredible project manager, Alex Diekman, who is a steadfast conservation conservationist here in Montana. And over the course of about three years, we were able to generate funding, about $19.6 million, to essentially close the deal and lift the development rights off those lands. Why that was so important was over the years, F.H. Stoltz Land and Lumber Company had been kind of shaving slivers of land off uh, for high-end development, such as the Iron Horse uh, development, yeah. as well as for expansion of the Big Mountain ski area. And we saw those actions um, as threats to our water supply uh, for good reason. Um, so I think that was a significant project, not only in, in the fact that we secured our watershed supply in perpetuity or water supply, but it also guaranteed permanent public access to those lands for our residents as well as visitors. I've been using them. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, it's wonderful. We've partnered with our other nonprofit friend, Whitefish Legacy Partners. They've developed an amazing trail network right. in and around Whitefish. It goes all the way, I guess it now goes all the way around the lake. Almost. Does it? That's the goal. Yeah. Okay. The, the goal is to circumnavigate Whitefish Lake, but that Haskell Basin piece was a critical missing link because we wanted to uh, integrate the Whitefish Trail in with the city's master plan for bikes and pedestrian trails. And so ultimately that deal also allowed us to build about a five mile um, recreational trail from our trailhead in city up to uh, the ski hill. Okay. And that, that was dedicated to the city by Stoltz for a dollar for the easement. Oh, wow. So we actually That's own great. that trail and uh, fee simple. That's wonderful. And if you're, you know, if you're trying to figure out what ski mountain it is, because uh, we're, we, we probably call it Big Mountain. I always call it Big Mountain. I do too. It's still big. It's still big. <laughs> it's now more ref commonly referred to as Whitefish Mountain. And, and I've made the mistake as the, you know, a little aside here, but I gave away some of my Big Mountain swag when I realized, <laughs> I, you know, we had some young friends who lived here and they saw something and they say, hey, do you, you want that? And I was like, oh, go ahead and take it now. I kind of wish I still had it. But um, the uh, the other projects, I mean, so that's part of your, you're talking about Haskell Basin, that's part of your future water supply uh, or an expansion of your future water supply or how, where's that, what's that project? So that, that was securing the water supply. Okay, just so we, securing So we've derived our water for about 100 years from those lands. Okay. Um, so it was permanent conservation easement. 
that, that allows us now to maintain those diversions and operate our water treatment plant in perpetuity. So we, we think about water infrastructure typically as, you know, the piping, the treatment plant, you know, the filters. But in this case, you know, our water supply is a forested watershed. Right. And so we wanted to harness the ability to have those lands be, continue to be managed for sustainable forest products by a very reputable private uh, timber company, FH Stoltz, um, in perpetuity. And it's it's a win-win for them because obviously they received a financial gain, but they can also you know, continue managing the forest, employ over 100 people locally here with good paying jobs. That's great. That's great. And the, uh, the upper uh, part of the watershed uh, was already preserved. And so, I mean, there's a lot of this watershed that's preserved now. Yeah, we're, we're very fortunate. I mean, in Flathead County alone, about, you know, 90% of the land base is public land. Huh. I mean, we're surrounded by F.H. Stoltz yeah. Land and Lumber Company, Flathead National, Former, uh, Flathead National Forest Lands, uh, DNRC, you know, state lands. Um, and a lot of our success with our trail program has involved a very strong partnership with the Department of Natural Resources and Conservation where we've purchased easements as well as uh, licenses to build and maintain our trail network in and around Whitefish. So do you have uh, do you also have a, a wastewater treatment uh, project underway? We just completed that. Okay. And that was a three-year uh, project. You know, we were on a lagoon system for decades. Um, and we under because the Whitefish River is listed uh, for nutrients, it's an impaired water body identified as impaired uh, by the Department of Environmental Quality as part of the Clean Water Act. Um, we are required to upgrade, much like many municipalities throughout the country, um, our treatment capacity and capability. So, um, just last year, we finished that major capital project. It was about twenty-two million dollars, which was a very heavy lift for this community. We leveraged several state and federal grants to you know take the burden off our taxpayers but ultimately we did have to increase you know sewer rates uh, to some degree Um, but we went with a a fairly innovative technology called a sequencing batch reactor uh, that is state-of-the-art and will certainly help improve and will certainly meet our discharge permit requirements um, on the Whitefish River as a result of that project. So tell us a little bit about how that technology works. What's it? You'd have to ask our public works director. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, a lot of, a lot of capital projects over the years. And, you know, similarly, we just finished adding capacity at our water treatment plant in Haskell Basin. Uh, Just this past year, we increased our uh, water treatment capacity from 3 million gallons per day upwards now of 5 to 6 million gallons per day with the ability to easily expand that in the future because that that alone was about an $11 million uh, lift that we had to put on, again, on part on the the backs of our taxpayers. Gotcha. And the population here is what? about, it's about 7,000 year round residents, but at any given time, um, you know, we, we ramp up to 20, 22,000 in the summer in large part because of our proximity to Glacier National Park. Right. I was going to say it's August. I, I know, I know driving over here, there's a lot more than 7,000 here right now. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, let's go ahead and wrap up, John, and, uh, why don't you tell us how 
our listeners can find out more about the River Design Group and about, you know, the city of Whitefish? Well, pretty simply, it's just www.riverdesigngroup.com and cityofwhitefish.org. And both sites will um, provide plenty of information on both the ongoings at City Hall, which is... um, ever more consuming of my time <laughs> as is my company so they're they're good resources to check out great great well i really enjoyed talking with you today and you know learning more about your background and and finding out what the city's doing and so uh, you know thanks for joining us thank you it was a pleasure this has been talk plus water and my guest today was john mofeld principal hydrologist of the river design group based in whitefish montana and john's also the mayor of the city of whitefish montana i want to thank our listeners for tuning in and to say if you enjoy this episode of talk plus water please let us know by giving it a like and that's it my name's todd bottler let's talk water again soon